0: Well, hello. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the Scripture readings designated for the Masses celebrated in Catholic churches for the upcoming Sunday. So this episode will be a brief look at the Mass for October 10th, 2021. If you're keeping score at home, that's the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the Lectionary Cycle. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not a scripture scholar. I'm here just to share some of the background and context information I've gathered from the work of actual scholars and thoughtful commentators as all that is sifted through my own tiny brain. Our first reading comes from the Book of Wisdom, sometimes referred to as the Wisdom of Solomon. King Solomon did not write the book. He'd been dead for centuries before the book came to be. However, the author does assume the identity of Solomon on occasion and write in Solomon's voice. That is the case in the passage we hear today. This passage refers to a well-known story about Solomon. It's from the first chapter of the second book of Chronicles. God had promised to grant Solomon whatever he asked, and he asked for wisdom in order to properly lead God's people. Instead of asking for honor or power or money, Solomon asked for counsel, that he might be a more perfect instrument of God's justice for the Jewish people. God was impressed. He not only gave Solomon the gift of great wisdom, but also blessed him with great honor, riches, and power. The writer personifies wisdom as a woman, a sought-after and cherished bride. The meaning of this feminine personification has been a subject of much discussion among Scripture scholars. Some say it is a natural depiction coming out of a patriarchal, male-dominated society. Of course, they argue, a powerful male would want the company of a most wise woman. She could give him great counsel but would not threaten his dominance. Other scholars attribute it merely to the feminine form of the Hebrew word for wisdom. Still, other scholars believe calling wisdom she is a holdover from more ancient Near East religions having a goddess of wisdom. Moving beyond speculation about the reason for it, wisdom is presented as a woman who opens life to much deep joy. In Solomon's voice, the author characterizes her as more important than any earthly possession. He places her value above his own physical health and strength. Solomon even says he would rather be wise than good-looking, placing himself in direct conflict with Billy Crystal's character Nando on Saturday Night Live a few years ago. The writer's Solomon compares the companionship of his bride, Wisdom, To the worldly values of his day, he judges the worldly riches to be sand and mud next to her. And that is why this hymn of praise to wisdom links directly to today's gospel story about the rich man. The Book of Wisdom is one of the seven books in Hebrew scripture characterized as Wisdom Literature, or Wisdom and Poetry. As you listen to the reading, please notice the poetic style of the passage and the timelessness of its message. A reading from the Book of Wisdom. I prayed and prudence was given me. I pleaded and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepter and throne and deemed riches nothing in comparison with her. Nor did I liken any priceless gem to her because all gold in view of her is a little sand, and before her silver is to be accounted mire. Beyond health and comeliness I loved her, and I chose to have her rather than the light, because the splendor of her never yields to sleep. Yet all good things together came to me in her company, and countless riches at her hands." The word of the Lord. The responsorial psalm at this Mass is taken from Psalm 90, which is customarily seen as a lament. However, when we consider the refrain used within it and the way in which it relates to the passage from wisdom we just heard, the tone seems changed, don't you think? Give a listen. Fill us with your love, O Lord, and we will sing for joy. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain wisdom of heart. Return, O Lord, how long! Have pity on your servants. Fill us with your love, O Lord, and we will sing for joy. Fill us at daybreak with your kindness, that we may shout for joy and gladness all our days. Make us glad for the days when you afflicted us, for the years when we saw evil. Fill us with your love, O Lord, and we will sing for joy. Let your work be seen by our servants and your glory by their children. And may the gracious care of the Lord our God be ours. Prosper the work of our hands for us. Prosper the work of our hands. Fill us with your love, O Lord, and we will sing for joy. In the second reading of this Mass, we're continuing our trip through the letter to the Hebrews. I talked at length last week about its origin and intent, so I'll skip repeating it here. If you are interested in hearing it, go to the podcast for October 3rd. That discussion is at the beginning of the episode. Today's selection from Hebrews is from the fourth chapter. It's just two short verses, 12 and 13, but they're packed with significance. The fourth chapter opens during a discussion of being admitted to or excluded from what is termed God's rest. Overtly, there is mention of the sacredness of rest on the Sabbath, but one does not have to dig very deep before it becomes clear that the writer is also making reference to heaven as God's rest. Then come our two short verses about the characteristics of God's Word. Keep in mind that a reference to God's Word in the New Testament carries with it the understanding about God's Word that comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. In Genesis, it is the Word of God that causes all things to be. God spoke it, and it came into being. God's Word is alive. God's Word, more broadly interpreted as all of God's self-expression in creation, is not merely a generative power. It is the generative power. The Word is alive and it accomplishes what it proclaims. But Hebrews goes much deeper into that teaching. Not only is the Word alive and creative, but it is also ultimately piercing In this regard, the emerging Christian tradition differs from the Hebrew. Ancient Jews knew God's Word primarily as the proclamations of their prophets and the recorded history of their nation. In the Gospels, the Word of God is the message of forgiveness, mercy, and divine adoption, and the call to live up to the dignity of that adoption. The author shows us a Word that can inhabit and examine the most elemental features of creation, and that includes us. It separates joint from marrow. It is built into our bones. Nothing escapes the notice and the probity of God's Word. This sermon, disguised as a letter, is written for a Jewish Christian population that is in crisis of culture and religion. There is a noticeable malaise infecting many Jewish converts to Christ. For many, the Greek culture seems to be swallowing up their old traditions. The demands of truly following Jesus seem to many to be just too much. The second verse is open to multiple interpretations, largely because the original Greek is somewhat vague or, so I read, in the work of people who actually know Biblical Greek. The most concise interpretation might be something like, God sees it all. There are different opinions about what verse 13 is addressing. Is it describing God's self, or still describing God's word? The most common answer seems to be that it is describing God's self. The end of the verse is, it seems to me, a rather blunt reminder, disguised as a subtle hint, that to come up short when being pierced, examined by the word, to be seen by God as unfaithful, carries dire consequences. Here it is. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, Indeed, the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. No creature is concealed from Him, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must render an account the word of the lord our gospel for this sunday begins precisely where last week's gospel left off here we have the earliest iteration of the story about the encounter between jesus and a rich man you can find this story in matthew and luke too all three synoptic gospels relay it to us you can find the story in matthew chapter 19 verses 16 to 30 and in Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. I encourage you to try reading all versions, all three of them, to get a fuller appreciation of the story. One thing you might notice is that the story we carry around in our heads is most probably a combination of details taken from the three different accounts. We do that a lot. If you want another obvious example, Compare the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke and see how they relate to how we think of Christmas. Remember the context in which this story shows up in Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 10. Jesus and his disciples have completed their ministry in the northern region of Palestine and have made it into Judea. In chapter 11, Jesus will make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with all that follows we are nearing the end of Mark's Gospel. The content and the tone of the teachings have become far more serious. From this point forward, we will see more and more conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leadership as his ministry poses a threat to their livelihoods and their status. Let's listen. This is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At that statement his face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, so Jesus again said to them in reply, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God they were exceedingly astonished and said among themselves, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For human beings it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. Peter began to say to him, We have given up everything and followed you. Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, There is no one who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come the Gospel of the Lord. Let's start with the man. Mark doesn't provide us with any description of this man until later in the passage when we learn he has wealth. Both Matthew and Luke tell us up front that this is a wealthy man. Matthew and Luke also refer to the man as younger or youthful. Again, Mark is mute on this detail. The man runs up to Jesus, then kneels at his feet. The translation for kneeling is a Greek word that we've read before, and it is important to the story. At the same time, it's a bit of a mystery. The word is proskineo. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Which is the prayer posture of laying face down on the ground. In the first century Jewish tradition, only Yahweh, or someone whom the person believed to be God, would be shown this extreme degree of reverence. This prayer posture was the ultimate form of worship. According to this story, the man believed Jesus to be God, it seems. He asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? pause here for a moment. Just two chapters earlier, Peter proclaimed Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus both accepted and acknowledged the title there, in Peter's company. In chapter 9, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain and was transfigured in their presence, providing them with a glimpse of his divine nature. Finally, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus provides predictions, three of them, about his passion, referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is a messianic statement. Now in this passage, the man offers him the ultimate posture of worship and refers to Jesus as good teacher. Jesus responds with, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now I have to interject here a slight diversion. Do you know who said, God alone is good, but God and chocolate is better? St. Teresa of Avila Jesus is almost done with his primary ministry, yet you might read into his response, no one is good but God alone, that he is denying his divinity. Ask yourself that question. Is he denying his divinity? Then do a very close reading of this chapter and see what you think. Pay attention to the counsel Jesus gives the man. Jesus tells him, lovingly, you are lacking one thing, and tells him to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. This story troubled me greatly as a younger person. Is Jesus telling us all that we all have to be homeless beggars? If I keep too many nice shirts... Or my new iPad? Will I go to hell? Then I read some wise teachers concerning this passage. There are a number of ways to approach the question. Like this one. In early church communities, the call to give up all one has and follow Jesus was a common expression indicating a call to religious life, to enter a monastery, or to live an eremitic life, perhaps. Eremitic is just a fancy word for a hermit's life, of isolation for the purpose of constant prayer and contemplation. That, however, strikes me as sort of out of order chronologically. I think this explanation makes a little more sense. Here it is. Jesus is engaging in what is known as a Council of Perfection. That is, he is offering the man an idealized goal which is understood from the start to be impractical and unachievable. He's aiming high to get maximum range out of the shot. That one's a little better, maybe. But the approach that most resonates with me personally is this one. Jesus sees a man who is gifted with resources in a culture where great resources at one's disposal makes one powerful and secure. Remember, at this time, wealth is seen as a sign of God's favor already given. Jesus is asking this man to be willing to follow the instruction he gave his disciples in the immediately preceding story. Remember the children coming to him whom he embraced and blessed. Then, he said, one must enter the kingdom of God like a child. That is, to be fully, totally vulnerable, totally dependent upon, and totally trusting of God's generous providence. That is what this man would be doing by placing his wealth in the hands of others. He would be abandoning the very things that he believes to be signs of God's favor toward him in favor of trusting in Jesus and the gospel. He would be taking his gift of wealth and placing it at the disposal of the gospel. The man's wealth, his many possessions, did not constitute his inferred shortcoming. Wealth, possessions, are in and of themselves morally neutral. His shortcoming is his reluctance to share with those who have a greater need. It's his greed. Mark doesn't tell us what the man does in the end. He tells us he simply walks away sad. I think most people infer that this man does not follow Jesus' advice. But the question is not, in fact, answered definitively in the text. The story now shifts to Jesus' observations about those who have wealth in general. And here, depending on your translation and perhaps influenced by your personal politics. We can see Jesus is not condemning all who have wealth. He is instead taking on those for whom pursuit and accumulation of wealth takes precedence over the great commandment and call to selfless love. These people are the subjects of his warning. As with every great gift, whether material wealth or great intelligence, whatever the gift might be, the first consideration is that it be acquired honestly. The second consideration is the responsibility of the gift recipients to use their gifts in service of the common good, out of love for God and neighbor. Remember that in Jesus' time, Wealth and power were seen as outward signs of God's blessings. In this context, it isn't surprising that the disciples were so astounded at the words of Jesus. Then of course comes this enormously memorable image. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now there's an interesting side note here The Greek word for camel, camelos, is only one letter different from the word for rope or cable, camelos. Some translations offer the image of threading a rope through a needle, instead of a camel. To me that makes more sense, looking only at the continuity of the image. Rope or cable is, essentially, a really fat collection of threads, right? But the consensus among scholars is that the change to rope was done by some anonymous ancient copyist who might have been trying to soften the analogy. Further bolstering the camel image is a popular story dating back to about the ninth century, it seems, that one of the gates in the Great Wall around Jerusalem was so low and narrow that it became known as the Eye of the Needle. Some claims have been made about its location, but there is no archaeological evidence that it existed. There is a hint of Jesus having some sympathy for the plight of the rich. By that I mean the tone suggests, to me at least, that Jesus has an awareness of how extremely susceptible we humans are to the promise, no matter how false it is, the promise of safety and comfort that comes with having wealth. He does not say it is impossible for one who is wealthy to enter God's kingdom. He does acknowledge that divine grace will be required to overcome human flaws. For human beings it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. The promised life of the kingdom, the ultimate gift from God, is accessible only through God's grace here and now in this life. Now we come to Peter's words, and you can almost hear the dejection in his voice when he says to Jesus, We have given up everything and followed you. It was a true statement. Peter and Andrew gave up their fishing businesses. So did James and John. Matthew gave up a lucrative tax-collecting business. And all of the disciples, with the exception of John, would ultimately be martyred for Christ. Jesus assures Peter and us, for whatever we deny ourselves in order to follow Jesus, we will be extravagantly rewarded, not just in eternal life, but in this life as well. This is not, however, the sort of cheap prosperity gospel as promoted by some unscrupulous self-proclaimed evangelists. To understand the true riches gained in this life, one must come to appreciate the value of the community of faith and the dignity of the poor whom the community serves. It is in them that the hundredfold return of houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, is accomplished. That's it for this week's Scripture Preview. I pray you are able to celebrate the love of God this weekend, in person or online, and may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bring joy and comfort to you with every breath you take.